Welcome to The Storytellers, the radio show and podcast that features those who choose to leave their mark on the world through the art of story. I'm your host, Grace Salmon. I look forward to our time together today. Now, let's meet our storyteller. Deborah Lanwer Engel is a best-selling author of The Only Little Prayer You Need, Let Your Spirit Guides Speak, Be the Light That You Are, and her debut novel, 20. Her work has been endorsed by His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, Archbishop Emeritus Desmond Tutu, and other notable authors. She is also the recipient of two Nautilus Awards, which are awarded for better books for a better world. With a long career in both book publishing and writing, she now heads the Story Tell the Story Summit Writers School. It's an international school, and I could not be more humbled or honored than to welcome Deborah Engel to the Storyteller's microphone. Thank you so much. It's such a joy to be here. Thank you, and we're going to talk about joy in such just a minute. I wanted to start with how did you get so wise? Because I've just started the only little prayer you need, and I've been skipping around through it. But I loved the nugget where you say, "When you are warm-hearted, there is no room for anger, jealousy, or insecurity." How did you get so wise? <laughs> well, I had wise parents. That was a good start from the very beginning. Um, my parents were very spiritual people, and even though they didn't really talk about it an awful lot, I'm the youngest of six kids, so they had to have a lot of wisdom, I think, to uh, to parent that many children. Um, but probably the thing that I credit most for whatever I know or believe is A Course in Miracles, which. Um, some people are very familiar with and others have never heard of before. But A Course in Miracles is a, it's called a spiritual self-study program, although it's difficult to study on your own. Um, but it came about back in the 1960s and 1970s, and it is called spiritual psychotherapy. It's a wonderful way of understanding who we are as human beings and as spiritual beings. And really, I live out that course or try to to the best of my ability, I fall short a lot, <laughs> but but I'm trying every day. Um, and I've had the joy of teaching it for many, many years too. So it's that practice, that daily practice that has helped me, I think, understand, see some things in ways that I never would have before. And I, you've mentioned joy. We've only been on the air two minutes and 49 seconds, and you've mentioned joy <laughs> twice. I was fascinated when you talked about some research you did where there were 46,000 articles on depression in one journal over time, and then there were only 400 on joy. Right. Yeah, I think that's so eye-opening. You know, we are, and this is from A Course in Miracles, these teachings uh, that I've really come to embrace because that particular study was something that was quoted in the Smithsonian years ago. And, but it really points out how much we are trained, we're programmed to look at what's wrong in this world, to look at what's wrong in our lives and to look at what's wrong in us seemingly, rather than to focus on all of the things around us that are joyful, that are beautiful, that can bring us peace that we're really grateful for. So, you know, that is part of A Course in Miracles. That's a big part of it actually, is, reversing our thinking in a way that we start to look at what's right 
rather right in our lives rather than what's going wrong in our lives. And that shift in perspective, oh my goodness, as you can imagine, it just changes everything about how you experience the world. One of the quotes I live by is when you change the way you look at things, the, the things you look at change. And it sounds very much along this study of miracles. In your book, too, in your first book, The Only Little Prayer You Need, you talk about how this should be taught. I'm, I'm an educator. Before I turned novelist, I'd written three other books, and now I've, I've turned to novels. But I'm still fascinated by the educational side of what we can teach and what we can impart to others. So are you thinking that this should be part of formal education? Well, I think it wouldn't hurt. <laughs> um, you know, and actually, I think a lot of the principles of the course's teachings are, they have become very mainstream. I actually credit Oprah a lot with that, because if you look at the, you know, the 10, 15 years, especially of her program, daily program, where she was bringing on authors, speakers, um, leaders who were speaking about how we are responsible for what we think. Not just what we do or what we say, but we really need to look at how we think. Um, this is not just positive thinking. It's not just a decision to, you know, put a happy face on things and pretend that they look good. This is about really taking stock and accountability for what, what mind am I thinking with? Am I thinking with that part of myself that's afraid that I don't have value or that's worried about whether people like me or love me, or if I'm disappointing someone or will please them? Or am I living from the part of me that remembers, you know, we're all born into this world with a lot of gifts and with a lot of light too. And if we can start to really live from that part of ourselves, from a place that wants to share who we are, rather than taking in all of the negativity from the outside, we start to make changes in our own lives but we also start to affect other people in different ways. And those teachings, I think, are getting out there in the world so much more than they were 10, 20, 30 years ago. So even though it's not a part of formal education at this point, I think we're getting the message out, you know, so many people in their own ways. Um, part of it's just basic kindness, you know, and respect for one another. And recognizing that when we, you know, when we really take good care of ourselves and we love ourselves, we will extend that into the world in ways that truly count and can make a difference. So the great thing is that we get to enjoy our own lives more instead of taking on, you know, a lot of guilt or shame or blame instead to recognize that we have so much joy, so much light, love, well-being to share with one another to appreciate in one another, as we do that more and more, all of our relationships start to shift. We start attracting more of what we want. The world really does become a kinder place. And oh, it's I, good. No, I agree with you. I love your focus on insecurities because we are so often, and I think particularly women, but all of us humans, we are our own worst enemies, those insecurities, those things that tell us we can't. So you have a wonderful little prayer that you say, and you ask us to say, which I just typed out and put in my office. Yep. And it's so, so simple. This came about on a really bad day that I had several years ago, 
when I was just frustrated and tired from being frustrated and tired <laughs> so much. You know, I thought I've done all of the spiritual study. I've been teaching spirituality for so many years, but yet I could still get caught up in the negativity in myself, in my own mind. So I asked for a prayer of some kind, asked God, source, spirit, energy. And what I heard was, please heal my fear-based thoughts. Very simple, please heal my fear-based thoughts. And at first I didn't quite recognize how much power there was in those words. I just thought, well, you know, sure that sounds good. But within a couple of hours, I started seeing the impact that that had. And actually I was about half an hour away from home when I first heard those words. By the time I got home, it was such a clear message that I was supposed to write about this prayer. And that became the only little prayer you need. It's fascinating because the more I wrote, of course, the more I learned about what this prayer means, why it's so powerful. It's different from other prayer because typically we we're asking for, um, you know, our sports team to win or for our children to be okay or for a loved one to get better or, you know, we're asking for important things, things that we care about. But typically they are things external to us. And what we're really asking is, please let everything in my life line up in a way that makes me happy so that I can have peace. And this prayer is very different because it says, please heal my fear-based thoughts. It's asking for my beliefs, my mind to be rearranged, my heart to be rearranged so that I can be peaceful no matter what's going on around me. And that, in essence, is really at the heart of what A Course in Miracles is about, what all of these teachings are about. We so naturally look outside ourselves for answers, for affirmation, for frustrations, annoyances, grievances, everything. But what the Course is really reminding us to do constantly is to go inside ourselves to find our answers to go inside to find the love that we're seeking, knowing that we are that. We don't have to go out looking for it. It's in us. We are enough. We are enough. Yeah, we are enough. That's you sure. have written these beautiful spiritual books. And then in 2020, there was a novel. Why a novel? Well, because in 2012, I believe, uh, a July morning in 2012, I woke up and I had had a dream, this very vivid dream. And, you know, if you've ever had one of those, when you wake up, you know that something important happened. I mean, I dream a lot, but every once in a while, there's one that stands out. And this particular one had that quality. In fact, when I woke up from the dream, my very first thought was, oh, I'm supposed to write about this. And the premise to the book which may sound odd at first, but that's what I think is, it was what was so compelling to me as an idea for a book. What happened in the dream was that there was a woman who took these little pills that she called pearls. And the idea behind them was that if you took these, 20 days later, you would just pass on peacefully in your sleep. There were a couple of other things that happened in the dream too. But that idea of this, something that would cause a transition, you know, out of this life, 
into the afterlife was so intriguing to me because in the dream, I experienced the vitality of knowing that you may not be here much longer and how beautiful everything becomes when you know that you may not have much time left. So I started writing right away, hadn't written a novel before, didn't know where the story was going to go, but I just started listening and writing. And that book took about six years off and on to write because other books came ahead of it. Um, but I'm really proud of it because in the end, it has so many spiritual themes in it. And while the premise to it may seem, um, you know, kind of depressing or, you know, morbid in some ways, actually it has a very hopeful and hopefully inspiring message. I had a lot of emails from people back in 2020 who read the book and because that was such a difficult year with the pandemic, they emailed and said the book gave them so much hope um, and really something to hang on to during that, that difficult time. So you know, it's a joy I would, again to write. Well, I was so surprised to dive into 20, the name of your novel, because we I was enmeshed in joy through your other work and you exude joy. And then the opening of 20 is she's contemplating uh, what I would have called suicide. And at one point she says, oh, I hope nobody thinks about this as suicide. And she was taking control. I thought, at, first of all, it's beautifully written, Deborah. Every word glistens. It really, really does. Uh, I loved everything from, you have this wonderful saying that she comes from a long line of flowers and then immediately explains that each of her ancestors is named that. I also loved the theme because it's a theme in my own book of thinking she's done. My main character is, she's just is done. She's convinced she's done. And then luckily finds out she's not. Is that a common theme for you that we need to find out that we're not done? Where does that come from? Or where does that go for you? Yeah, I think, um, you know, it was kind of embedded in the message of that dream. And then ultimately the story. Um, a lot of things surprised me as I wrote that book, things that I didn't hadn't really ever thought about before. And that was one of those, those um, feelings that I guess I had not completely felt, at least not as deeply as Meg, the main character, does. But certainly there were times, there have been times when I've thought, you know, I'm in my 60s now. Um, I still feel like I'm just getting started in many ways and am grateful for that. But I have also certainly had those times where, for whatever reason, I've just felt tired or frustrated or um, maybe you could describe it as that feeling of, oh, I'm just done. You know, I've, I feel like I've done a lot in this lifetime. Maybe I'm just ready for rest. And, you know, it could just be that I need a vacation. <laughs> but I do think I do think that there are a lot of people in this world. Um, as we grow older, you know, we look ahead and think, what's going to continue to give me purpose? Um, how will I live out my days? Will I have a good quality of life as I get older? Am I still needed? Am I still purposeful? And so I'm hoping that the book does address those feelings for people and helpfully, hopefully brings them to a place of realizing every day is new. Every day is an opportunity for us, you know, to find purpose 
and meaning and to feel renewed. And that really is, you know, that purpose-driven life. And I don't think it needs to be, you know, I'm going to cure cancer. It right. is what is that purpose that we're going to find every day that makes not only our own life meaningful, but connects us in valuable ways to other human beings. Because I do not think that we live in a silo. We are here to connect and to uplift other people. I just want to go to the tech, the technicality, if you will, of 20 for a minute, because one of the things you do in your book, and I personally like, I, I did it in my first novel, you write in the first person, and that's supposed to be a no-no. Uh, talk to me about that a little bit, because then we'll switch to the story summit. Okay, great. Um, you know, that was a very intentional choice to write it in first person. And actually, I started writing the book in third person, but I got about 100 pages into it or so. And then I started thinking, I wonder how this is going to end, because I really didn't know. And I asked my guides, which I do a lot, and they told me what the ending was going to be. And when I found out, I thought oh, that first thought was that's the perfect ending. And the second thought was, well, now I have to go back and rewrite it because it has to be in first person. So, um, and if, you know, for anyone who reads the book and I won't do any spoilers about the end, but I think people will see why it needs to be in her voice. And part of it too, is just that it makes it so much more personal. The book becomes her journal basically of what she's going through during these 20 days because she takes the pearls in the first paragraph of the book and then the rest of the book is the unfolding of her discoveries and um, her feelings of, about the decision that she's made. So I, I feel really good about the first person, but it wasn't my natural inclination at first. You know, I was always told it's a no-no, don't do it. It makes readers too uncomfortable. And for me, it is. It's much more intimate. If I can identify with the character, if I can identify with the character, then it's something I can't enter into or enter into the partnership that a reader and a writer has together. But I do, I, I love the intimacy of that. So I'm looking forward to what happens uh, to your character as we move forward. I asked you about why novels. Now I wanna switch to this International Story Summit Writers School. You're the managing director of it. Tell us about it. Well, it's a phenomenal organization, honestly. And I say that because I'm just really grateful to be part of it. It was started a couple of years ago by David Kirkpatrick. And David is the former president of Paramount and the former chief of production for Disney. So this is a man who knows a lot about screenwriting, about getting movies made, but also about just writing in general. And he, a couple of years ago, about two and a half years ago now, um, decided to start putting together some writers retreats. We did the very first one aboard a cruise ship in February of 2020, the end of February of 2020. Just, just so, before just the before. pandemic broke out. Yes. So you can imagine, we basically got off the ship and the world shut down. Um, but that first retreat was a wonderful way to bring people together, both in screenwriting and in publishing too. And once we got into the COVID year, we realized we're not going to be having in-person retreats for a while. So David came up with the idea of creating an online writer's school and asked Amy Ferris, 
who I know has been a guest of yours and just Fabulous. a phenomenal writer, phenomenal human being. Um, she, yeah, she and I um, have had the honor of working together ever since to put together the Writers' School. And one of our key um, missions from the very beginning, you know, we thought here we are in this year of the pandemic when people were feeling so isolated and alone. And I think that's true of writers in general anyway. Writing is a very solid, you know, an act of solitude generally. So one of the first, first things we wanted to do was to create online classes that were interactive, um, where people could really talk to the faculty, talk to each other. And we wanted to create community. We wanted to let people know that they were not alone. So those were two of the things that we set out to do from the beginning. We offered our first classes in November of 2020. And here we are almost two years later, and the school has just kept growing and growing and growing. Now we do have in-person retreats again, uh, but we will continue those online classes because they've been so impactful for hundreds, really thousands of students around the world. And I love that you are uplifting some perhaps marginalized voices. You're definitely focusing on women, not entirely, but that I love that you have that focus. You know, Deborah, I, my time on the Storytellers always goes so quickly. I would love to have you back again. Before we close, just tell us maybe something a little bit quirky, different about you, something that somebody couldn't find out if they were just Googling Deborah Engel. Well, um, one of the first things that comes to mind is that I was once mistaken for the first lady of Guatemala, <laughs> which I had uh, okay. gone, to yeah, gone to Guatemala on an exchange. And I won't, it's too long a story, but um, went into kind of a remote part of Guatemala and the people there thought that I was the first lady and showered me with hugs and flowers. And when the first lady actually showed up, um, she and <laughs> the people who had made the mistake, I was totally clueless, but they uh, they realized the mistake and I felt very, very embarrassed by it. So, <laughs> But did you go with it for a minute, just accepting all the love? I did. I did. Yes. And was so, so appreciative. I thought I just soaked it in. So, it's yeah. Absolutely wonderful. Deborah Engel, I hope you'll come back to the Storyteller's Microphone and thank you for being with me today. Thank you so much. What a pleasure. Thank you. That concludes this episode of The Storytellers. I'm so glad you could be part of the story today. I hope you share the stories, tell your own, and come back for another episode. Because when our stories are told, everything changes. I'm Grace Salmon.